0: As you know, we're in Romans chapter 6 through 8, and this is our third of five Romans series. We're, we're breaking up the book of Romans rather than spend 18, 20 months in Romans straight on. We're breaking it up into, into smaller sections, and then at the end of each section, we, we punctuate the doctrine we learn in each section with a, a series devoted to practice. And. Um, on the other side of this Roman section, just if I can give you a minute of, of preview, even though we're not going to get to this until October, but when we get to the end of chapter 8, we've, we've embarked now into chapter 7. At the end of chapter 8, uh, we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. We'll do that for about four, five, six weeks, somewhere in there. That'll take us up to the Christmas season. Spiritual disciplines are in practice cruciforming. And when we say cruciform, what we mean is, is a, a life that is alive to God uh, because of, of what Christ has accomplished for us. But what we get in Romans chapter 6 through 8, where we are right now, what we get in this section of Romans is teaching that we're dead to sin. In fact, we looked at it in verse 6 of chapter 6. Uh, our old self has been crucified with Christ, that language there. We're dead to sin, we're alive to God, this by grace, but grace isn't just something we believe in. It's not simply our beliefs that, that conform us to Christ, that, that transform us, that change us. Grace shapes our loves and our longings so that we obey from the heart. As it's put there in chapter 6, verse 17, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit as it's put there in chapter seven, verse six. Grace gets into the motivational structure for why we obey. We obey from God's approval, not for God's approval. And this is how we can seek alignment of our way to Jesus' way, to his truth, his life, even when we find his way in conflict with our own. And if we're honest, we will find that to be at times. And so I want to take you to spiritual disciplines when we complete Romans 6 through 8. I'm just giving you a little commercial here for it. And the reason is because spiritual disciplines are helpful in our putting flesh on cruciformity. It's helpful in our putting grace to work. Uh, For it not to be just this concept that we believe in, but something that we're, we're actually being conformed to the image of Christ by. And so we'll talk about, we'll break up spiritual disciplines into two. We'll talk about disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence, so disciplines of engagement, something I give myself to, like confession, like prayer, like service. Disciplines of abstinence, something I keep myself from, uh, like solitude, like fasting, like rest, keep myself from work when I'm resting, Uh, We'll go to John 15 as our grounding text because Jesus uses in John 15 the vine and the branches imagery to say that he prunes us to make us more fruitful and we have this emphasis all through chapter 6 here on bearing fruit so it makes sense to go to John 15 after our time here in Romans 6-8 through and the pruning of Jesus is cruciforming in effect. Classic spiritual disciplines Christians have practiced for centuries have a role in getting us into grace shape. And that'll actually be the name of that series, Into Grace Shape. I know it's clever, a nice little play on words. Thank you very much. That's a preview of what's coming. Uh, a Couple of months uh, from now. And I tell you that as we get into chapter seven today, we're getting into chapter seven with 617 attached. So almost look at this like you've got your Cassiopeia over here constellation. And you've got this little star over here that's 617. And we're going to put both together. And I, I, I tell you about the spiritual disciplines coming because we're going to come at our text in, in a way that impacts how we will later talk about spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk this morning about the difference between positive and negative freedom. That's the name of the sermon and that's going to be the two tracks on which this sermon will run. We'll talk about negative freedom first and we'll talk about positive freedom because that's this passage before us. These six verses in chapter 7, that open chapter 7, along with 617 above it, they tell us that we've been released from the law. That's the word that gets used down in verse 6 of chapter 7. We've been released from the law. That's the Old Testament law of Moses. By law, you do understand he's talking about the Old Testament law of Moses. We've been released from what? We've been released from its condemnation. Because of what Christ has done for us so he says in verse 1 chapter 7 verse 1 he asks another of many rhetorical questions he's been asking do you not know brothers for I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives and then he goes in verses 2 and 3 to this analogy uh, based on, on marriage and broken marriage and remarriage uh, this, this pitch to the overarching point that is in verse 4 that we are to consider ourselves no longer tied to the law's condemnation. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin. The law tells us what sin is. Our old self, remember chapter 6 verse 6, our old self is who we inherited from Adam, crucified with Christ, therefore we're alive to God and we belong to another, in the words of verse 4. Notice there in verse 4, so that you may belong to another. We get a lot of law talk here. And I know that law talk can be tedious and it can seem academic, but we do need to, uh, to think about this before we get into what is negative and positive freedom. The essential function of the law is what? Class, you should know this by now. It is to show us that we're sinners, that that in relation to God, we've been talking all about in this service thus far, what God's holiness, that is his perfections, his ultimate sufficiency in his own being and person. God has no needs, God has no deficiencies, he is holy. When we say he's holy, as we've exalted in in this service, that means he's perfect and the law given from him Paul will later in this chapter say, is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good because it shows us exactly who we are, that we're not holy. And so the law doesn't rub our face in this, but it does show us our real condition before God is one of self-sabotage. That is that we are our own worst enemies in our preference for sin. But thanks be to God Look back up at verse 17 in chapter 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, which is what he's giving us here in Romans, this doctrine. I told you last week we would return to chapter 6, verse 17, because of this phrase in chapter 6, 17, obedience from the heart. You see that phrase in verse 17 of chapter 6? If you pair it with the phrase down in verse 6 in chapter 7, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, you've got complementary ideas, and they're underscoring the reality of a certain kind of freedom. A certain kind of freedom. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6, but this is not unregulated the new way of the spirit. It's not unregulated. You know, we talk a lot about freedom in Christ, particularly from a a Western cultural context. We we talk about freedom a lot as Americans, liberty and justice for all. But we talk a lot about freedom as American Christians and well we should, but the, the, the freedom is not negative freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. Freedom from constraint, freedom from restrictions, freedom from limits and checks on ourselves. The freedom we get from Jesus is positive freedom. If negative freedom is freedom from, positive freedom is freedom for, freedom to. Align our loves and longings, our desires and expectations to Jesus. So the, look at that verse six, chapter seven, verse six, the old way of the written code, into verse six, that's the law. The law given through Moses to Israel, that's no longer binding on those who've been made alive in Christ and serve now, what does verse 6 say, by the new way of the Spirit. The old way of the written code is no longer binding, but the new way of the Spirit is binding. I so say, wait a minute, what do you mean binding? Notice in verse 6, capital S, Spirit. See that? The Holy Spirit of God indwells, we who are alive to God in Christ, God the Spirit indwells us for what purpose? Well, there's many purposes, it's sealing, it's, it's a lot of things the New Testament talks about, but one main purpose is to conform us to who Christ is, who our Savior is, and what he wants us to be. But the Holy Spirit does this not by cutting us free of all constraint. Actually, he does it by cutting us, which is what we'll get into in John 15. In the analogy in John 15 that we'll come to in October, Jesus says you're going to be cut either way. If you're unfruitful, I'll cut you off. I'll prune you if you are fruitful to make you more fruitful. You ever pruned a tree and you think, what am I doing to this poor tree? I'm killing the tree. And then next year it comes back with this fuller flower, fuller fruit. That's what pruning is supposed to be and do. We'll get to this later in John 15 as a punctuation on the text that we're in now. But it's to cultivate obedience from the heart so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, so that we bear fruit for God as the end of verse 4 puts it. I've got to belabor this just a little bit. Um, it, it, just, it has to be when we talk about our release from the law. I would be, I would be less than a, a biblical preacher if I didn't belabor this just a bit. So hang with me for a couple of minutes here if you find this academic. The law was given to Israel in order to prepare the way for the Savior of all, of Jew and Gentile. But the law is given to Israel to prepare the way for Jesus who would do what? Who would live by the law flawlessly. And even more than that, if if that wasn't enough, would also graciously take the law's condemnation, which he didn't deserve, would take it in our place, which is what he did. I've been telling you as we go through Romans that God's law, uh, given through Moses, it, it does what? It's like a periodic table of the human element, isn't it? It names all of our sins for us. Verse 5 here even says the law arouses sin in us, which Paul will go on to talk about more in chapter 7 as we will in another sermon. But let's be clear on the overarching point. Jesus took the death penalty the law imposed on sinners, though he never sinned himself, and doing so freed us from the law's condemnation and from the law as a governing system. Remember chapter 3, verse 9? Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, all are under sin. Most of us in this room are who? Gentiles. Most of us in this room. We don't have a Jewish heritage. And that means that the law wasn't given to us directly but indirectly, it was in that we also learn from the law we are sinners in need of God's gracious intervention on our behalf. The Jews learn that through the law directly given to them, the Gentiles learn it through the law indirectly given to us as God's standard. And without God's gracious intervention on our behalf, we're in for his condemnation. The Jews couldn't keep the law, the Gentiles would fare no better. We relate to the law differently in Christ than apart from Christ, but Jesus kept the law for us. That's the $64,000 payoff. Really, it's priceless. (laughs) But $64,000 does mean priceless, right? That's the way we use it. And so while we respect the law, Paul will say as we go on in chapter 7, we respect the law for its ongoing testimony to the holiness of God. We respect the law as good given from God. We do not look to the law to conform us to Christ. This is why we have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit as mentioned here in verse 6. God the Spirit conforms us to Jesus. He does so how? By cultivating obedience from the heart. This phrase up in verse 17 of chapter 6. What does that mean? It means that your motivation to obedience is different. Under the law, it is you obey so that you can be blessed. In Christ, it is you've been blessed He's done everything for you now, obey. It's a completely different motivational structure. Again, I know talk of the law can be tedious and academic, but this side of the cross, a law is not imposed on us to make us obey, and yet God still expects obedience from his people day in and day out. That expectation has never gone away. It was there under the law. It's there under Christ. What's the difference? The way the law worked, do this and I will bless you. Obedience to get something from God. The way it works under grace, not that there was no grace under the law, but the way, just for simple contrast, the way it works is we get something from God, blessed by what Christ did in fulfilling the law for us. He lived flawlessly. He sacrificed himself in our place. He rose from death. He is ascended to the Father from where he will return. We obey from the heart. Meaning, not doing something for God's blessing, but from what God has done for us. This is the new way of the Spirit, verse 6. With all this in mind, let's think now about positive and negative freedom as we have it in this passage. We're going to begin with negative freedom first and move to positive freedom. Our freedom in Christ is not negative freedom. Again, what negative freedom is about freedom from. There's a sense in which it's freedom from. I'm, I'm freed from sin and, and serving sin. But negative freedom, it, it's, um, the way we experience this culturally is that it's, um, it's freedom from any and all constraint. It's freedom from, from anybody telling me what to do or, or how to be. This is, this is negative, negative freedom. Our freedom is not that. Our freedom is not, I can do whatever I want. Now turning to putting verses two and three in this, the, the analogy with, uh, with marriage, what is, what is the point of verses two and three in this argument? Paul says, by way of analogy to this, just as marriage is not an I can do whatever I want experience, neither is belonging to Jesus. He's paralleling the two here. Now, why use marriage to illustrate this? Because, well, think about it. Because marriage is the one place where it doesn't work to choose negative freedom. It's the one place, the one human relationship where if if you try to go with, I can do whatever I want here, that doesn't go over well in marriage. Marriage requires some measure of self-sacrifice, of, of bending to one another. Listen, both participants in a marriage want to change the other. This is not just something women want to change their men and men want to change. Men want to change their women. Both, we get this, this is the source of most marital conflict. But a self-indulgent person in earnest, a person who takes this stand, I will be this way and no other and you can do nothing. Uh, to change that if you do that in marriage that's a recipe for disaster within that marriage that a a self-indulgent person in earnest will kill a marriage because they will assert negative freedom for themselves he or she will want to be off the hook from any responsibility to sacrifice anything of myself for my spouse because I want to do what I want to do clearly that's not good for marriage and so as you look at Paul's example here in verses 2 and 3, and let me just say before we, get, we, we unpack this, I think I need to say in pastoral tenderness that if marriage did not go well for you, or it is not going well for you now, you've been divorced or you fear that you're headed there, please do not be discouraged by the illustration in our text here and read personal condemnation into it. There are no scarlet letters with me. We're all damaged. And if marriage happens to be for you ground zero of where you were damaged most, I I want you to know that God remains faithful to you and good to you and loving to you. And if any Christian has ever given you a less than sense of that, please forgive us. The church ought to be the last place on earth that makes a divorced person feel condemned. The point Paul is making here, drawing on marriage, drawing on broken marriage, which is a reality, the point has to do with what happens when we exert negative freedom. He's paralleling this to our relationship to Christ. What happens when we exert negative freedom? The adultery he's describing in verses two and three, as you look at verses two and three, the adultery he's describing as he's describing it is the effect of negative freedom chosen. I'm going to be free from my marriage vow because I want to go over here and do this. Obviously, adultery itself is giving ourselves a freedom not ours to take. Many reasons God barricades that road to us. But Paul is pointing here to the adultery that results from negative freedom chosen. Ending a marriage to remarry another before death did us part. This passage is not dealing with the question of whether adultery as cause for a marriage ending, whether that permits remarriage in cases. He's not going there here. Our elders have a position paper on that question. It's available on our website if you'd like to read it. All Paul is saying here is in service to this larger point about life in Christ that negative freedom... If one leaves a marriage, as an illustration, if one leaves a marriage to remarry another before death of spouse, she's doing what she's not permitted to do, both under the law and also under Christ. It's negative freedom. It's a choice for something God doesn't lead us to, and it's contrasted to the positive freedom of verse 4, which we're coming to, but let me try to illustrate the point here another way you know the FedEx logo? I mean, we're Memphians, come on, everybody knows the FedEx logo in Memphis. But do you know how, if you look at the logo, there's an arrow. Have you ever seen the arrow in the white space between the E and the X? You've seen that arrow. Once you've seen it, you'll you'll never unsee it. Uh, There's a forward pointing arrow. I give you permission to Google this now if you've never seen this. I never give you permission to pull out your smartphones except, but the rare occasion, here's one of the rare occasions. I tell you, you can pull it out and Google this. If you've never seen it between the E and the X in FedEx, there's an arrow. Now in graphic design, that arrow or that that space is called negative space in graphic design. Negative space is this subtly hidden image. Your eye doesn't immediately pick up on it. When our eye first looks at the FedEx logo, we just see FedEx in two different colors. But then when you look at, oh, yeah. It's a negative space image. Once you see it, now it's there. In the logo, the FedEx logo, what does the negative space arrow say? It says something very positive about the logistical services of Federal Express, right? The arrow says, we're moving. We'll get your stuff to you. You can depend on us. You can rely on us. That's all that arrow is saying. Likewise, look at verse 4. You get a likewise. Verses 2 and 3 pivot into the positive freedom in verse 4. The analogy drawn in verses 2 and 3 functions kind of like an arrow in using a negative freedom example to point to a positive freedom reality. Positive freedom is conveyed by what's in verse four. Look at verse four, chapter seven. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Bearing fruit for God is positive freedom. Negative freedom, freedom from, constraints, Restrictions, no. Positive freedom is freedom to, to give myself to what? Bearing fruit for God, verse 4. Paul uses, in verses 2 and 3, remarriage after death of spouse to transition us to positive freedom, how it works. When a spouse dies, the surviving spouse is free to remarry if they choose. Remarriage, in this example, before death of spouse, negative freedom. Remarriage after death of spouse, positive freedom. Why use marriage to illustrate this? We know why. Among human relationships, marriage is the ultimate relationship. Second only to our relationship to a a triune God. I know there's been pain from marriage for some here this morning, But even if it has been a painful experience for you, I think you'd still agree with me that marriage is the ultimate human relationship, which is why it is so painful when it goes so badly. I tell young couples when I marry them in the preparation time, your kids, as important as your kids will be to you, they will not be one flesh with you even if they come from you. And I I tell them that because I want them to understand Their marriage is the the family core. I mean, you don't marry to get kids. You marry to get one another. It doesn't get any closer than marriage among all other human beings on earth. Lynn is my ultimate person. What's Paul saying in verse 4? God brings us this close to himself in Christ. Do you believe that? Can you believe that? It's a tremendous thing to consider. How close does God bring you to Himself? Marriage close. And even if you've had a bad marriage, much like I could say if we were talking about the fatherhood of God, and people have had bad experiences with fathers, and sometimes that idea is difficult for them. Even so, the effect of being brought so close to God by Jesus is positive freedom. I want to obey. Negative freedom, freedom from. Positive freedom, freedom to. Freedom for, bearing fruit for God as it's put here in verse four. I want to obey even if I struggle to. Isn't that what we see in the disciples and the gospels? They're wanting to obey but they're struggling with obedience. We see this in the early church. All the, the Writings of the apostles to the church is is dealing with with issues where they can count on the fact that people want to obey, but they're struggling to for whatever reasons. We see it all the way through church history on up into the contemporary moment that we're in now. We want to obey, even if we struggle to, because something else has taken place in us that motivates us from the heart. In Christ, we're freed from pursuing the interests of sin, to pursue the interests of God, even when it's difficult. And, and chapter 7 is nothing if not honest. As we go on, Paul will we'll get to the struggle. The struggle is real. But in Christ, we're, we're freed from going and looking for something for ourselves in sin, and, and we can locate that something we're looking for ourselves in sin. We can locate it. In our savior. We belong to him. Look at verse four again. We belong to him like I belong to Lynn and she belongs to me. And as you know, what is the church called in scripture? The bride of Christ. The household of faith in Galatians 6. The beauty of that imagery of belonging, even those for whom marriage did not go well and have have sat in the the brokenness and and destruction of it, can still affirm the beauty of belonging to one another and and realize that this imagery applied to us, verse 4, is beautiful. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, that is, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may may bear fruit for God. This is positive freedom. This is obedience from the heart, chapter six, verse 17. This is serving in the new way of the spirit, two verses down from verse four and verse six. Every Christian is learning, and we don't learn this usually all at once. It usually takes a lifetime, but we're learning that the freedom we need, this is where Christianity is countercultural, particularly with Western cultural context. The freedom that we need is, is not the absence of any constraint away from all restrictions. The freedom we need is we need to find the right liberating restrictions. That's not an oxymoron. We need to be told no at times. I need a Lord over me. I do. If I'm the master of my own morality, that will not always go well because I will not always hold myself in check. I cannot trust myself to always hold myself in check. I was reading an article uh, just, I think maybe last week or maybe the week before. It was about a church in Los Angeles called Reality LA. I don't know if you've heard of this church, great church. The article was on how, it was an interview with the pastor, Jeremy Treat. And the question was basically, how did this thing succeed? They meet in Hollywood. They've got a, a great influx of young people who did not move to LA to meet Jesus. And the church is orthodox. Uh, it takes positions on cultural issues of the day that are, are taking the Bible seriously. It preaches the gospel. They open the text every Sunday. They take the Bible at face value. It's not, it's not a, you know, trying to do this brand uh, kind of thing. The pastor teaches at Biola, which is is an evangelical stalwart uh, institution. And and Jeremy Treat was talking about what, what he thinks attracts people in L.A. to his church. And here's what he said, his words. We preach scripture because God calls us to do that. The church is founded on the word. But I think that's what people want. And then he said this, and this is great. They want a loving resistance to their own propensity to self-destruct. They want this. They don't want a Christianity gutted of all, I mean, you you know, you want to see gutted, go go to the taxidermy shop. You want to see animals gutted? They don't want that. They want a living, vibrant, honest-to-itself Christianity. If, If you think that People are, are move, Young people are moving away from evangelicals. You know why? Because they don't see what they think is authentic Christianity. They see us parading around in this little cultural bubble that we've created that we can't tolerate any out-of-stepness with. They're looking for the real thing. His words, again, Jeremy Treat's words, they want a loving resistance to their own propensity to self-destruct. Imagine that. People, especially as we think of them in, in places like L.A. and New York, and you find this in Memphis too, trust me, we just hide this under a lot more religiosity in Memphis than they do in L.A. People have tried negative freedom, and it doesn't work out so well for us. We were taught negative freedom from our philosophy professors in college, It's the goal of a 1,000 self-help books. I go to the movie theater, and they have this stupid Diet Coke ad where this girl's walking around. You just be you. You just be you. It's the dumbest ad I've ever seen. I don't get, I mean, how in the world did they, I get angry when I see that ad. What is she talking about? This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You want a Diet Coke? Drink a Diet Coke. You know, just go, come on. You couldn't come up with a marketing concept better than that. Ruins the feature for me. (laughs) Angry, 15 minutes in, all right, finally end of the movie. The stupidest messaging, you do you, you know? But we fall for this, don't we? I mean, you don't fall for as blatantly stupid as the Diet Coke ad in in Malco theaters, but you fall for it in other ways, and I do too. Because you do you, we love that. We love you do you messaging. How many think this way? In terms of negative freedom, you can do whatever you want so long as you don't do what? Hurt anybody else. But you know what? How do you know? You can't always know whether or not you're hurting someone. You don't. Negative freedom just doesn't work. It takes us further into the bondage of sin. It leaves behind us this trail of broken relationships and flaky commitments. And listen, people do get tired of themselves doing that. A lot of young people in in the most highly secularized places, every strategy for self-improvement is failing them, and and a lot of them are beginning to recognize it. And so then then the consideration becomes, what's after that? After I've tried the ultimate and it's let me down. And so now you've got uh, Larry Norman is cool again. Larry Norman was the original Christian rocker back in the 70s. And Larry Norman had a song, why don't you look into Jesus? And some of you can remember that. And you didn't like the Jesus people movement that that spawned. Well, there's another one coming, perhaps. And so, if so, God in his grace to you is giving you a second chance to bless and love young people as they turn to Jesus themselves. And why are they turning to Jesus? Because of what this passage articulates, because this resonates with us. Obedience from the heart? You mean somebody's not forcing me? God's not even forcing me to obey him? It's obedience from the heart. It's serving in the new way of the spirit, not the old way of the written code. That doesn't mean the law was bad. In fact, that's the next sentence in Romans 7. The law is not sinful. The law is holy and righteous and good. Bearing fruit for God? It's it's attractive even though we still want our sin, it's attractive because we do want a loving resistance to our own propensity to self-destruct. And if you're honest about this, whether you're young or old, if you're honest about your own propensity to self-destruct, you appreciate where Paul's coming from in Romans 7. Because we too, we too who came up, we who came up in deep south religiosity, We too want a different motivational structure. I want to obey him from the heart. I've tried to obey to keep up appearances. I've tried to obey to keep mama uh, happy with me. And I find that exhausting because I find the struggle of living as a Christian in a fallen world to be real. It's a real struggle. And I'm really drawn to that which I I need to find in my Savior and I want to locate it in my sin because that's my draw. And so as he retools me from the heart, I want more and better. And I I realize there are resources for me in Christ that that I can get from nobody else. The people in the church need to look into Jesus too. Verse 5, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law meaning we knew better being very religious verse one what does he say I speak to people who know the law we knew better but we didn't do better why not because our motivational structure was set on doing something for God's acceptance for God's approval and when Christ comes he blows that out of the water that's not how it works we obey because of what he has done for us If you're trying to get something from God through what you do and earning it, all that will make you do is resent God. It's exhausting. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, that sin, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Do you know the truth of this? Do you know the liberation of this? Do you know the motivation of this? the new way of the Spirit, bearing fruit for God, obedience from the heart. More about this as we keep going in chapter 7. Would you stand with me? Let's pray, and we're going to sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for each one in this room. Thank you for letting us come to this place this day and deal with this text. Lord, help us in our weakness and our frailty to keep looking to you because uh, of all that you hold for us and, and provide for us and give to us. Thank you for loving us in Christ and, and arranging things that we come to the end of ourselves. And there we don't find empty space, we find an arrow, pointing us again and again and again to a, a greater love, the love behind every love we've ever gone seeking for ourselves. Thank you for being a resilient savior and being a patient God. Thank you for all your goodness to us in Christ. Amen.